invite you to turn to James chapter 5 if you have a Bible. As you turn there, talk a little bit about waiting. But waiting at times can feel so pointless or aggravating. Maybe we want to come to the end of a trial so the anxiety can stop. Maybe it's a relationship that needs mended. Maybe it's a verdict from the court or from a doctor. Maybe it's a dream that hasn't come to fruition. Maybe it's a job that is waiting in the wings. And in the meantime, as we wait, sometimes, if not all the time, we wonder at its purpose. Since the Bible speaks to this issue, I know it's not a current day or a timely problem, but a timeless problem. But even so, in America, it seems like culture and every invention is trying to train us in the art of impatience. (laughs) As an article I read earlier this week put it so eloquently. (laughs) To give you an illustration, how many of you have Amazon Prime? (laughs) No. Amazon is a website that allows you to purchase things, and Amazon Prime is a certain subscription that allows you to have free two-day shipping. Now, I have that, and even then, sometimes I get impatient. (laughs) Right? Like, two days is like three days in woodland time, (laughs) and even then, heaven forbid, I I get something uh, when business days are disrupted. And, uh... I think I, I think I really need that book or that movie or that coffee yesterday, not three days from now. Or, you're, you already know I drink coffee, so I'm just going to say this unapologetically. I don't know how many times I've been at a coffee shop car lineup and I saw people leave because anything past five minutes is too long of a wait, apparently. But harder than waiting for coffee or waiting for more useless media items we don't need is waiting under suffering, waiting under injustice, waiting through trials. Why do it? At the beginning of James 5, we came to last week, we read about greedy landowners who were not paying their Christian workers' earnings who were indulging themselves in money and withholding from their Christian workers. And we, we ended on such a paradox of our lives or of how our society thinks. For James wrote to unbelieving rich people, or maybe they were uh, believers and they had fallen, this statement, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. The righteous man is being condemned or or murdered. Great injustice, great trials, such suffering. But he, the suffering saint, does not resist you. Exemplified completely in Jesus, a condemned and murdered innocent man who did not resist. And uh, James seems to be alluding to the fact that taking after Jesus, the saints in this community are doing life. How so? How do they do that? How can you and I do that? I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Word of God here, if you're able to stand. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James writes, 
Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, we don't come before somebody's thoughts on a given day. We come before the Word of God. Your Spirit inspired the writing of these words, and though they be in context and history and given to a certain group of people, we trust that you've given them to us as well. We pray that your Spirit might interpret these things and apply it to our hearts, that we would receive with meekness the implanted Word that is able to save our souls. Father, I'm ill-equipped to, to teach this, but your Spirit is able, and I pray that it is willing. I pray that you would make our hearts willing to receive it, that your grace would beckon us further into love with you, and to love with others, and that you would give give us exactly what we need, and many of us have needs that are different, but your Spirit is able to speak to each and every heart that's listening. So I pray that you would do so, and that you would act on your mercy and grace. So that's the only way you can deliver this today. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've rewritten the uh, first part of this sermon several times in order to spare you from lots of minutes of something that is, is in this passage, but it's relatively insignificant to the entirety of this passage. Nevertheless, it's something that we cannot get around or minimize to look over without a little bit of explanation, and I also want to teach you an honesty and integrity as a teacher, not just gloss over something. So in order to properly have background for this passage as we walk through it and not stop three times to discuss it, I'm going to discuss first and up front in verses 7, 8, and 9, James makes mention of the Lord's coming. What he states in verse 8 is near, and he states in verse 9, the judge being at the door. I think you would all agree on the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy or infallibility. In other words, every jot and tittle in the scripture has no error and is completely true and do not contradict, doesn't contradict one another. And I believe that, but in order to present it accurately as such, sometimes we must press the scriptures and take stock of it in the whole, in light of the whole counsel of God to prove such things. And I say prove, not in a negative connotation, as in the scriptures are innocent until proven guilty, or vice versa, as if the scriptures were on trial. However, 
but prove as in to reveal what we know about it to be true, that it is an error. And all that being said, I personally feel convicted by my belief in scriptural inerrancy to believe James at his word when he tells those who he is writing to that the Lord's coming was near, that the Lord, that the judge was at the door. Meaning that James and or the Holy Spirit foresaw the coming of the Lord in judgment. Humanely speaking, near. Why do I say humanely speaking? Because James was a human writing to other humans. And when humans hear the Lord's judgment is near, then they would perceive it and receive it like you or I would. And that is, James must mean that the Lord's judgment might be in my lifetime. And I believe it was. I believe that there is no mistake nor deception on part of the Holy Spirit or James here, but rather we must take it as it's worded. You hear what I'm trying to say? Yes. To remove you from the idea that James is talking about the coming of the Lord in a final sense, which will indeed happen in the future, note that James states nowhere in these verses the intent of the Lord, but solely to judge. Nor did James state implicitly that a final day of human history was near, just a day where there will be a judgment. And you can read selections, multiple selections of Old Testament prophecy to realize that the Lord has come and judged on many occasions. That were not final occasions. The Lord came in a very real way and judged the Egyptians with ten plagues, and his presence continued with a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke or cloud. He came in a way of judgment to bring the Babylonians to sack Jerusalem, days of judgment, days of wrath. Thus, what is James referring to if he's not referring to the final judgment day here in James? The end of May... Whenever we started the book of James, I told you that it is estimated that James wrote his letter around the mid-40s A.D. It is a decade and a few years, likely, after Jesus died and rose from the grave. That final week of Jesus, the Tuesday of Passion Week, that is two days before the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples walked out of the temple, and we read in Mark 13, if you were here 15 billion years ago, when we went through Mark, we read, as he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? I will not endeavor to rehash my five sermons in Mark 13, you're welcome, but take note of the object of concern, what the object of concern was for the disciples. Namely, when will these things happen? What things? The things Jesus just referred to Right next to the temple, the temple's destruction. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD in a magnificently brutal 
destructive, bloody, supernatural, horrific war. It was, in fact, a very real judgment of God for all those who did not heed Jesus' warnings on the Olivet Discourse. For those of you who weren't here for Mark 13 and now you're interested, I'm sorry, but all five of those sermons are still available online if you want to look that up. That coming of the Lord in judgment was in a very real way. And I believe that is what James is referring to. That's not just because I have an opinion and want to be right about it, but I cannot get around James's words of noting the nearness of judgment. That is why I believe this was important to cover, to know that you can believe James at his word. When he says the Lord's coming and his judgment is very near, because it was. So, all that being said, done, and out of the way, James states, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Whenever a passage starts with the word, therefore, we should usually, it usually refers to the statements before this passage, which is what we noted at the beginning, the fact that greedy landowners were, quote, condemning and murdering the Christians below them. And again, even further shocking, these Christians, these righteous men, were not resisting them. So, what James mentions is judgment. He says in James 5.3, they're living in the last days. We talked about that last week. Uh, in verse 4, the injustice that's been done to them has reached the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But the fact of judgment is twofold. Judgment is misery and bad news for the condemned. But for the righteous, it becomes hope. It becomes something that the righteous and the saved and the saint must be patient for. Verse 7. This coming judgment becomes something that a person's heart can be strengthened by, established on, built up on. Strengthen your hearts, verse 8 says to the believer, as in, fill it up with this truth. <laughs> Give it a firm place to stand. What is the brother's heart to stand on? The Lord's the Lord's coming. Now, for those hearing this from James for the first time, I believe it was James echoing the prophecy of Jesus about judgment that came nearly 20 years after this letter. But the truth still remains for you and me. Because God's kingdom is a just kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom where there will be a final day. A day where all wrongs are righted. Where all sinners are judged if unrepentant, or they are forgiven and saved and reconciled with God and with each other by the grace of God and the celebration of God. This is a hope that you can bank on in your trials. This is the hope that can fuel your patience. That you and I live in a kingdom and we serve a God who enacts final justice, who sees every injustice, who knows every evil, and who has every intention to bring about 
resolution, perfect justice, righteous judgment, and wholehearted closure and consolation. The injustice that has been done to you will be met with perfect justice. The sins committed against you will be answered for. The evil in the world will be met by God and restored and redeemed. Ecclesiastes tells us, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity, for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Revelation tells us, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will, no longer, will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That is a hope that we can thank our patience on. That there will be an end, there will be a glorious end, a good end, an end brought by a perfect, righteous, holy, and just judge. For those suffering under the trials in James's day, an end or a point or a purpose came about. But for us, we can trust in and hope in the end that is coming, whether it be the end for all of human history, or just like in James's time, a decisive judgment that God delivers before the end of the world. Whatever happens, and however it happens, we must know that our hope and patience is not in something or some event. We must know that our hope and patience is in someone. Jesus, the righteous judge, strengthen our hearts because of not any coming. The Lord's coming is here. I want you to hear this also slightly different as well. Not in just a final judgment hope, but a different hope by this word coming. In verses 7 and 8, our patience is in, quote, the Lord's coming. And the word translated as coming is commonly known. Maybe you've heard it. It's the word parousia. Parousia literally means present, coming, or arrival. So, for instance, Paul writes to the Philippians, so then, my dear friends, just as, if you, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Perusia, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The point I'm getting across is that I sincerely believe James is giving admonition to his listeners to wait for the justice that would come in 70 AD. But I believe that simultaneously you and I can wait with hope, expectancy, and gratitude that our hope will be fulfilled not only with just the coming of the Lord at the end of time, but the full counsel of God tells us that the Lord's presence, period, is what we can wait and take hope on. What we, we sang two songs from Lamentations 3 today. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him, then listen to this, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. For it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I believe that says it all right there, but other passages, if you want to read later, is Psalm 37, verse 7, or Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. 
But the point is this, that waiting for the Lord, whether it be for a decisive end or a time of justice and judgment for James's readers, whether it be for the great consummation at the end of the world or whatever it be, our waiting on the Lord is never in vain. It's wrought with hopeful expectation. Paul says in Acts 17 that we are made so that we might perhaps feel our way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Peter says that he is our living hope. And Paul tells Titus that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how to be patient in trials. To know that patience is wrought with hope in the living and blessed God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has steadfast love and mercies that never come to an end, whose mercies are new every morning, and he is the God who does good to those who wait for him. So then, James tells us that we can take three examples, or we can take a lesson from three examples. And the first example, he, he tells us in the middle of this exhortation, as he tells us in verse 7, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. I see in here two things. The, the first is obvious, and that is, Something that I hear during fire season, especially, you know, you'll be sitting in here for prayer time and somebody will pray for rain and then a farmer will say, no, don't, don't let it rain yet. Or, no, I do want rain now. I want rain next week. And, and uh, the rain needs to come at the right time because when it comes down to it for farmers, there is factors beyond your control. Uh, some of us who work in other jobs might miss this. I work potato chips besides pasturing, and potato chips are the number one best-selling snack item. And odds are, on most days I go to fill them, there will be spots to put chips in. Now, when it's sunny outside, or maybe when it's Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, Super Bowl, I have a lot more spots to fill. But on a given weekend, I'm always getting a paycheck, and I'm always filling potato chips. But the land and the rain are in God's hands. And farmers who at times have to practice patience and trust in God in a real way, who is in charge of something that, sure, we might try to manipulate with water and irrigation, but the patience and trust in God is what we ought to pick up in our waiting on the Lord and His, and His presence and His vindication and His righteous judgment. But a second thing we might learn from this, that is James's word choice. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit. I want you to hear that in waiting in your trials, waiting for Christ, waiting for the judge, is producing fruits of righteousness. Romans 8.28 would suggest that God uses trials, even trials he may not bring about himself, but he nevertheless uses them for our sanctification and our maturing. Hebrews 12 assures us that he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, amen, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit. Wait patiently for the Lord. Sustain your heart with the living hope found in Him. And know that fruit is coming about from your trial. Can you say this with me? Fruit is coming about from my trial. Fruit is coming about from my trial. I said that there were three examples that James gives us on how to deal with trials and how to take hope in the Lord's presence, the Lord's coming. The first example, very practical example from observing farmers. The last two will be examples from the scriptures. But before we look at that, James interjects one of his major themes of the book, that is the tongue, and he connects it to trials in the middle of nowhere, it seems. Verse 9 hits us. Brothers, do not complain about one another, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. It, it struck me that this is a very real, real faith, and what I mean by that is, I don't know about you, but James's reasoning for complaining, as his reasoning to not complain, he brings up a point that I probably wouldn't have overlooked. And, for example, here's what I think first. Don't complain about one another because that's bad. Because that's negative thinking. Because that's harmful and hurtful. It's unloving. It's immature. It's gossip. Whatever. James brings God home to your life and mind front and center so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. This is what some Christians and theologians call Coram Deo. That is life before the face of God. James's insertion here lets us in on a fact also, though. That oftentimes in our trials and our suffering and patience, we can then have a tendency to turn on and complain about each other. The most vivid thing I could think of, I know you guys like illustrations, and I'm sorry if this is not illustrative enough for you, but have any of you ever read Anne Frank's journal? Very interesting. What struck me, though, this here is Anne and some family members and soon some other families hiding from the Nazi regime. And what starts to happen? Anne starts to bicker and others start to bicker about one another. <laughs> and I remember reading it thinking, you know, 70 years removed from the ordeal, you're hiding in a bunker from a psychotic dictator and his bloodthirsty army, and you think now's a great time to complain about the idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy about your fellow refugees. Okay, really. But whenever we get in tense situations, in trials and suffering, we at times look for anything else to divert our attention. And instead of coming to God, confessing that we can't hold it all together, it seems a little bit easier to look at other people's sins and shortcomings and pick on them for it. However, we think about Paul. And Paul, in a moment of stress, in trial, he's in prison. He writes the Ephesians in his fourth chapter. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is important to remember in trials. When we are waiting 
on the Lord when we are tempted to throw up our hands in angst and say, I don't want to go through this anymore. And we're tempted to be self-focused because we're not getting what we want. The Lord calls us to continue to bear fruits of peace and righteousness, to not complain against one another. You hear that? And we can do that. It comes full circle because our patience and our suffering and our hope and our longing is not laid up in that thing we are waiting for, but we can reorient our focus and our patience and our hope to be on the one who knows the end. The one who will bring about his desired end, the Lord. James moves away from this exhortation on what not to do in trials, and he goes back to two more examples. The first is, again, the first example was the farmer waiting for rains from the rainmaker, God. And the last two examples, James tells us, are from the scriptures. He says, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Jim shared with us from Hebrews 11 earlier today, the last part of it going into chapter 12. We know Hebrews 11 is this hall of faith. And we read about their tortures and trials. Again, some men were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were commended through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be, so that they would not be made perfect without us. And that is Christ. Because of Christ, we can face all these hardships. We can have patience and suffering. And besides the general example of the prophets, we think of the specific example James gives us, and that is Job. This is an interesting example that James gives us. He says, you have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. Christy's been reading through the Bible. She's, she hasn't been doing, she has not been doing the thing on the bulletin, that plan, but she's just front to back reading through it. And I think she started Job, or maybe she's in the middle. I don't know if she finished it, but one thing she noted, and, and something I think we all note throughout the whole book, Job is complaining, <laughs> lamenting. Wish God would talk to me about this. This is pretty lame. <laughs> All this suffering and misery and just silent on the other end, it seems like I've done nothing to deserve this. That's Kevin's butcher paraphrase. And I believe the point that James is making here is that even though Job questioned the purposes of God, here is a man who has a pattern of faith in the face of adversity. And even is pressured towards unbelief. Right? Job's own wife, she lost the kids just like Job did. She lost everything just like Job did. And here's what she says in Job 2.9 for all of history to see. Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, I'll, I'll consider that. <laughs> but even Job points us to someone. Not 
that something we can put our hope in. Because even though Job was pressured, he didn't give in to unbelief, and even though he questioned God's purposes, he never left God. Look at what Job tells his friends that he longs for in Job chapter 9. Job says about God, For he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no one to judge between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But that is not the case. I am on my own. Many of you know that Job is historically the first book ever written for the Bible. And it amazes me that the very first person who put the pen to the proverbial paper, unbeknownst to him, is writing about Jesus. You are not on your own. But God shows up in the God shows up at the end of Job saying, You are not on your own. And God shows up in the person and work of Jesus to let the Jobs of all time to know you are not on your own. But in fact, he is tried and tempted just as we are. He suffers just like we have, and he dies, and he takes away the power of sin, and he gives us new life. And he's coming again, and he hears our prayers, and he walks with us in our sufferings and trials. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is indeed very compassionate and merciful. Friends, do you ever feel like life is a trial? You and I don't have to put our hope in the ends we seek, or the problems finally coming around to resolution, or the relationships being mended here and now. You and I can take hope in our great God, who will bring justice, will bring peace, will bring righteousness, will bring reconciliation, and will right every wrong. We can take hope in the someone of our great God and Savior, who has been in our shoes, who has walked this earth who has breathed the air that you breathe, who is a high priest that truly sympathizes with our needs. And so we can look to our trials and look to God like the farmer looks for the rains and maybe note the fruit that comes about from our trials. Fruits of righteousness, of peace. And we can take confidence to know that many suffering saints before us have experienced trials and have come out on the other end knowing that God has proven himself to be compassionate and merciful. Don't you know, don't you love that that is the God you serve? Compassionate and merciful. Friends, if you're in trials today, draw near to God and know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Suffering is a universal thing. Some suffer greatly. Some suffer maybe in a comparison on the world. It may not seem like great to anybody else, but it feels great to us. Remind us today that our suffering and our patience has meaning. 
that are waiting. Maybe it's just waiting. And it's not, we don't even classify it as suffering, but waiting has meaning, has purpose. I think about Moses, who waited 40 years to do what he felt called to do in Egypt. And there he was out there in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep, probably feeling like nothing would ever come to pass. But at the right time, you appeared to him. Many of us are waiting for that burning bush encounter for you. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage the saints today to know that their waiting is not in vain, that every second is wrought with the purpose of making us more like you, and that is something of extreme value. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage us today. And, Father, may these be the words that we can use to encourage others to share the light of Jesus, to let others know that in their suffering that every second counts and that it's not going to be for nothing. So, Father, we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.